Father, we thank you for this morning that you've given to us to uh, come together, to fellowship, to study your word, Father, to worship you, to come into your presence. And we, we pray, Father, that as we look more into your word this morning, you'll, you'll uh, touch each heart here, including mine. Father, use, use my mouth to speak your truth. And Father, I pray that, that we will, by looking into your word, that we will be changed. Well, we've been going through our study of Acts, and we're still in Acts today. So I wanted to ask a quick question to start off with. How much does it cost to send a message? Have you ever thought about how much it costs to communicate? Back in the 1800s, our government put together a Pony Express. It was a way to get messages across the country. It was the fastest thing ever, ever come up with at the time. It cost about $50 to send an envelope across the country. And it took several days. I'm sure that Brother Weston could tell us in detail how much it would cost to get a postcard in every mailbox in the neighborhood. And it could be in as many colors as you want and with really nice graphics too. I, I, uh, I looked it up and I found out that $5 million will buy you 30 seconds during the Super Bowl. So you can get a message out. If you've got that kind of money, you can get a message out to a lot of people. But what about the gospel message? Well, LifeWay is an organization that we support focused on getting the gospel message out. Their budget last year was about a half a million dollars. The IMB that we also support, they had a budget of $260 million last year. Our budget's a little more modest than that. But sometimes, and this is what I want to talk about today, sometimes the price to send a message isn't in dollars. A martyr is someone who dies for their faith. And the word martyr literally means witness. That's what the word means. Martyr means witness. We think of martyr as immediately someone who dies. Because that's what it, that's what it is. But the word itself means witness. And so what we say when we talk about a martyr... We're saying that someone paid the price of their own life to send a message. So we're going to talk about we're going to talk about that a little bit today. We talked about it last week. Brother Kevin Minchie came and preached for us about about Acts seven. We see Stephen, the first deacon and the first martyr, recorded. He uh, he'd been preaching and doing miracles. When the Sanhedrin decided that they, they didn't like what he was saying, they rounded him up and accused him of blasphemy. They arranged even for false witnesses to come and testify against him. And what was his response? To preach. Preach the sermon to the Sanhedrin. And, and how did he preach? From the Old Testament, he started at the beginning and walked through all the people of faith and how they, how they were faithful to God and how God was faithful to them. But then he closed and he told them, there are always enemies of these people, these faithful people. And you, Sanhedrin, you religious leaders, are walking in the footsteps of the enemies of God. And he said, the enemies were often those who should have been their defenders, but they were ones who, who opposed God's Spirit. That's what he told them. The, the Scripture tells us that they were cut to the quick. 
Brother Minchie reminded us last week. Cut to the quick sounds a lot like pierced to the heart when we think about it. And pierced to the heart is what happens in Acts 2 when Peter preached to that crowd. And so many were saved. But as he, as he reminded us last week, cut to the quick and pierced to the heart are actually very different. They are the truth of God coming at us, touching our heart. But if we are willing to receive and if we are willing to be shaped and surgically cut by this truth, that's the pierce to the heart. But if we resist, if we fight, if we fight God's truth, that's the cutting. It's a more violent thing. It's a, it's a destructive thing. He reminded us that those guys, those attackers, those uh, antagonists of Stephen, they were so angry that they gritted their teeth, they gnashed their teeth, they clenched their fists. And the scripture tells us too, they literally held their hands over their ears. They did not want to hear what Stephen was saying. And then they murdered him. So this group of people whose whole reason to be was to support and protect the holy law of God as given by Moses, what did they do? They broke Moses' law and they murdered this man. And that's how it goes. The persecution of the church, church started in earnest on that day. So we're going to read, we're going to read from Acts 8 and 12 today. We're going to skip a little bit because we've already covered Philip and the, and the eunuch earlier in the series. And we want to focus on these passages about persecution. So after concluding chapter 7 with Stephen's death, Stephen's martyrdom, Stephen's murder... Chapter 8 begins. Now hear the word of the Lord. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and, and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed and were lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. I'm going to move... I want to move to Acts 12, and I'm going to start at verse 1. This is a little bit later in time, but it's a different story about persecution. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. 
It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. So we see uh, two stories of persecution there. One from, one from Saul, who is later going to become our hero. But right now, he is the villain. And then one from Herod, who stays the villain until the end. Um, when we look at Saul as a persecutor, what do we see? We see zeal. He's very serious about this. He believes in what he's doing. And he is ruthless. He's dragging men. He's dragging women out. He doesn't care. These people are blasphemers. And he's going to put them away. And what's his goal? What is Saul's goal? To make them stop talking about this Jesus. And especially stop calling him Messiah. What's his method? What's he trying to do here? Well, he's trying to drive them out of Jerusalem. He killed. He had one killed. The scripture doesn't record that he threw any stones, and it seems that he just stood there and observed. But that passive acceptance, that passive encouragement, is guilt. And, and Paul knew that. He's clear about that later in the scripture. He had people imprisoned, he had families uprooted and separated. But what was the response of the people that went? The scripture tells us that when they were scattered, what did they do? They went about preaching the word. That's what it says. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. See, God, God was in this and God responded through his people because he's sovereign. And this is a hard thing to see because he allowed Stephen to be a martyr. Stephen, the first, one of the, the first deacons that was named and a faithful man. And, and everyone, everyone acknowledged how faithful he was. He did miracles, this Stephen. But God allowed him to die a martyr. But what did he also do? While Stephen was dying, he gave him a vision of heaven. We, we talked about that last week. Stephen had a vision of heaven. He could see Christ in heaven, even as he died. But God also sustained the faith of the scattered. When they were scattered, what did they do? Did they hole up in their houses and stop talking? No. They spread this good news that they had. And so, and so God used... Paul and Saul's evil tactics, his evil actions, to spread the gospel all over the area immediately. If, he, if that hadn't happened, they would have stayed in Jerusalem for longer. I was thinking about this, and I'm sure you've heard the expression, but God was playing chess, Saul was playing checkers. Saul had, he thought, a tactic to stop things, 
that God had a much bigger plan. So he allowed, and he allowed Saul, and we're not going to get into it too much today because we're talking about the persecution, not the redemption as much. But he allowed Saul to do this in his province too. Now Saul was, was motivated by what? By pride? By, by false zeal for, for some kind of holiness that he thought he understood. But God let him pursue that path, even to the point of committing murder for, for that path. And why? So that when he redeemed Paul, it could be all the sweeter. And Paul could have no doubt of how it happened, about who was responsible, and about the, the complete grace and forgiveness of God. And so what, what happened with Paul after that? He became arguably the most influential theologian that ever lived. He, he, influences, he influenced the whole course of history. And he continues to influence us today like none other, really. Um, and so, so God prepared him by allowing him to continue in his sin. Then he redeemed him. And then he used him for this, for this preaching and this teaching. But then what? At the end of Paul's life, he was beheaded in Rome. Again in persecution. So we see, we see that even the holiest, even God's chosen people, they, they can face persecution even unto death. Now we see in chapter 12 a little different flavor. We see chapter 8, Saul, the religious zealot, trying to purify his homeland. In chapter 12, we see Herod. He's not really quite so pure. He's really more of a political operator. He cares about power. But he's ruthless. He's ruthless. He had James taken and killed. Said he was killed by the sword. That's a, a pretty quick description of what happened. It's just a summary. Yeah, take him and kill him. And that's, that's what happened to James. And then he noticed, ah, the Jews liked it when I did that. Hey, go get Peter too. Because I know, I'm, I'm seeing now how the politics works. I killed James. They liked it. Let's go get Peter. So he reached out and got Peter. Apparently that was no challenge for him to go take Peter. But it was a bigger challenge to hold on to him. So his goal was what? Political stability. Maintaining power. Maintaining control. But God's response was what? Well again, and Herod may not have realized this, but God is sovereign. God, God did allow the death of James, didn't he? He allowed, he allowed Herod to take and kill James, a faithful disciple. But then when it was Peter's turn, God intervened. And the scriptures tell us specifically that the church was praying for Peter. Faithfully, faithfully praying for Peter. We see that clearly. And so God sent an angel. A supernatural being, an angel. And I really like this as I was looking through this. Because you think of most angels in the Bible, and what's the first thing they say? Usually, fear not, right? I'm big, I'm intimidating, I'm scary. Fear not. Fear not. I'm bringing good news today. Usually, what does this angel do? <laughs> I love this. It says it struck him in the side and said, get up. <laughs> Didn't have time for niceness. I can just, I can just imagine kind of kicking him. Get up. But uh, struck him in the side and said, get up. This is a practical thing. This is a prison break. Let's go. 
right? The, the gate opened by itself. They, they loosed the chains. Peter was sleeping between two guards. How can, you kick, how can you kick Peter and tell him to get up and the guards stay asleep? Supernatural. It's a miracle. That's what angels do. So we see Peter broken out of jail. He's saved for the work ahead, and Peter's got a lot of work ahead. Peter, if, you, uh, if you go to Rome, as we got to do last year, you can see some of the result of Peter's work. Some of it's been a little twisted since then. But Peter did a lot of work. And uh, God saved him for that work. Now, then it goes on to tell us this little story, this little interlude about, about Herod going down to Caesarea. He's speaking to the crowd. And this is a, this is a strange little thing. I, I debated about whether to include this or not. But again, it emphasizes God's sovereignty over everything that's going on. This Herod gave a speech, which probably wasn't that uncommon for a politician to give a speech. But apparently it was a pretty good speech because the people said, wow, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. But rather than Herod humbly saying, oh, no, 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 I'm only a man. God is God. But that really wasn't in Herod's playbook to say that. And he let it pass. He let it pass being called a God, but God didn't let it pass. God immediately sent judgment on Herod. Immediately. And he died. And so we see this recorded in Scripture that we see Paul going on for some time before he's redeemed. But we see Herod immediately facing judgment. And we can't always understand the ways of God, but we know that he's patient. And honestly, He's patient with us and we're thankful for it. But He's patient with evil rulers too sometimes. We're, we have a hard time being thankful for that. But the truth is, the evil in the evil rulers is, is similar to the evil in us. We have less power. And we're maybe, we may be less fully committed to the evil than some of them are. But we should be thankful for His patience. And we, because it benefits us, His patience. And then when we see him be impatient with evil rulers, we still pray. We pray for the ones that they harm. We pray for their conversion. Because Saul was converted. It is not impossible. We can pray for his justice to come. Because sometimes it does. Well, always it does. It doesn't always come when we think it ought to. So I wanted to, to kind of lay these stories out a little bit. And then talk a little bit about things that are happening today. Um, so we see these persecutions in the Bible. Some religious and some political. Both ruthless. We see, we see God act and intervene. But we see God also sometimes not act and not intervene. And we see persecution today in the world. And I don't have to... Uh, I, could, I could make a giant long list of some. And I'm going I'm to make a short list of a few. But we see persecution in this world for political control, for religious fanaticism, for corruption. As I was doing some study on this, Mexico is actually experiencing persecution of Christians. Why? Because there's so much corruption. There's organized crime. And Christianity is a, is a problem and a hindrance to recruiting people and maintaining organized crime uh, groups. So. So staunch Christians and people who stand by their values, they can be threatened because of that. 
Uh, there, there's, there's questions of national identity and purity. We, have, we see that in, in India. Political control happens in, in China and North Korea. Those are very famous and we know about those. We've got uh, millions of people under, under persecution there because of that. Uh, in Turkey, we, we have a pretty famous case going on right now at this moment. We have a pastor over there. Um, but when we, when we look at the numbers, and the, the numbers are difficult to, to assess accurately. There, there have been some careful studies that came up with a little over 3,000 people a year martyred. There have been some other loose studies that have come up with as many as 100,000 a year martyred. But we can be pretty confident, pretty credible taking a number that's somewhere in that seven, 8,000 people a year directly martyred because of their faith. There are other Christians killed for other reasons, but, but directly because of their faith. But if you think about, for every person that's killed, for, we, have, we have one recording in Acts 7 of Stephen being murdered. And one death. But how many families uprooted and imprisoned and disrupted, businesses wrecked and property destroyed that were corresponding to that? Right? So if you think about seven or 8,000 people killed, Think of multiples and multiples of that are the crimes that are associated with that of intimidation, of destruction of property, of assault. Non-fatal, but still assault. It's a lot. It's quite a lot. Because the world hates the Christian message. The world hates the gospel. So Andrew Brunson is, is the name of that pastor that's in Turkey. If you watch the news, you might have heard his name because it made the absolute top of the headlines. Because our government has made this our, our major focal point of our policy with Turkey. Turkey has taken this man hostage. I say hostage. That's a little bit of a loaded word. They say he's a prisoner. He's accused of, of sedition. But there's no evidence. It's a, it's a political play. And our government says, no, you need to let him go. And we're so serious about it that we will shut down trade with you and we will cause you major economic problems if you don't let him go. So that's going on. It's not resolved yet. Um, but this man is an interesting case because he's been in Turkey for 20 years as a pastor. He's a Presbyterian evangelical pastor at a place called the Izmir Resurrection Church in Turkey. All of the accusations against him are secret, which means probably nothing. All of the witnesses are secret. Um, right now he's under house arrest, but still uh, under control of the Turkish government. We see, uh, we have some people with us today that have seen this maybe closer than, than I have. We, have. we have a group in Egypt called the Coptics. They're Christians. Um, and we have a whole community of them right here in Middle Tennessee. But why are they here? Because they heard Tennessee was great? Well... They probably heard it was a lot better than Cairo. Because in Cairo, they get beat, they get their, their homes burned, they get chased down, they get bombed in their churches, and sometimes they get openly murdered in the streets. So, so that's why they're here. They're being scattered by this persecution. Some of us have even visited the, the Arabic Baptist Church up in uh, Florence Road. Uh, which was a, that was a sweet, sweet day we went up there. But why? Why are they being persecuted? It's a little more like Saul, isn't it? The religious leaders in that area want purity of their religion. And they want the people who they view as impure out. 
And if death is the way to get them out, that's okay. And often, often these are sort of vigilante groups. Sometimes it's the government. Um, but the government typically doesn't enforce anything to, to protect these folks. In North Korea, we see, we see lots of brothers and sisters that are, that are tormented greatly. North Korea is the number one persecutor on many of these lists because they're so brutal. And you've heard stories about them and their brutality. Um, I, won't, I won't go into it because it really is, it's really horrific, the things that they do. But what is their, what is their rationale? Well, they want control, absolute control. They, want, they demand complete loyalty from their people. And what they, what they view, if you worship someone else, God, that's disloyal to their dictator. And they won't tolerate it. So worship and obedience to the true God is disloyalty to their government, and they will punish you for it. In China, we have 97 million brothers and sisters. Can you imagine? Can you picture that? There are maybe 90 or 100 of us here today. 97 million people that are our brothers and sisters. So you'd think that there's strength in numbers, but the problem is there's 1.3 billion that don't agree with them. And so they're under persecution. And they're under great persecution. In China, it's a little more sophisticated. They use technology. They use, they use legal policies and laws that, that, that make it difficult to have businesses or, or have meetings in your home. And if you violate these tricky laws, then you can be imprisoned. And even if you don't violate the laws, you can still be imprisoned. And why? Because their communist, atheist dogma rejects the existence of God. And so when, when Christians preach the worship of the one true God, it violates what they, what they hold sacred, which is the nothing is sacred. And it's, it's terrible. So we talked a little bit about Acts 8. We talked about, we talked about Saul's persecution and God's response. And we talked about Herod's persecution and God's response. And what is God's response to the persecutions in these countries? What is it? In some cases, the jury's still out. We don't know yet how he's going to respond. We can be faith. We can, we can be confident that he will respond. We've seen him do it before. Uh, some of us have met brothers and sisters in Romania and heard their testimony of the persecution they faced. But God dealt with that government. Christmas Day, Ceausescu hung. It was ugly. That he faced the end because of his injustice to his own people. Ultimately, these governments, while they can survive for a while, and while God does have patience, even for evil rulers, his patience runs out. And ultimately, they can't stop the gospel, and they can't stop God from reaching people, and they can't stop the church from growing. So I would ask, how do we respond to this? We see how God responds. We wait for Him to respond. And we have to remember that God is sovereign. And we want to act and we want to do and we should. But God is sovereign. And I, and I would also remind us, this is, this is a very easy thing for me to do, to preach that God is sovereign and He's got it under control when all of the suffering is 6,000 miles away from me. That's pretty easy. But God's got that under control. I don't feel that, really that personally here. Right? But the Scripture tells us that we should. Because we're all one body. 
So how, how would I feel it more than I do? Maybe if I pray for them faithfully. Because when you pray for someone, you can't help but care about what happens to them. You can't help but engage in their, in their struggles. We need to pray for them. We need, to, we need to care. We need to hurt when they hurt. We must expect persecution. Right? We can't be surprised by it. Jesus told us to expect it. Paul tells us to expect it. All through the New Testament we see this, this warning and this, and this encouragement to endure it. Because it's going to come. But we must speak out too. Um, we have freedom here. The U.S. isn't on, on those lists of persecuted countries. Even though sometimes we like to think we're persecuted, we don't really know persecution like this. Right? There, there is a little bit. There, there are hints of it. And there are people who would persecute here, but they haven't succeeded so far, and hardly at all. But we have freedom, so we've got to use it. But remember, when you use your freedom to speak, you're representing who? You're representing Jesus. The King of all. And He is the Lord of truth. So we better make sure that what we say is right and true. We don't spread false accusations when we speak on His behalf. We remember that He's the Lamb of God who died for us. He humbly came and, and, and saved us by dying. So we speak, we speak with humility and we speak with love. We speak with compassion. We speak with truth. But we got to speak. He was courageous enough to stand up to all the rulers in the temple. He was courageous enough to stand up to Herod. Before his death, he was courageous enough to face his own death. So truth and courage and love, that's how our king speaks. That's how we should speak. And it's easy to speak with anger. It's easy to speak with even malice or hatred. But that is not, that's not how our king speaks. We must, we must condemn persecution when we see it. Because it's evil. We must call it evil. We, but we must look, look for God to redeem. And we must always speak the good news of the gospel. When our brothers and sisters are persecuted, they're being persecuted because of the gospel. So we got to say that. We got to say the gospel. We got to tell what it is. We got to talk about it. We must be grateful. Two, there are two angles to this gratitude that we have to have around persecution. One of them is in the midst of persecution. And this is strange, but Jesus Himself told us, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's Jesus' word to us about how we are to view persecution and understand it and be grateful for it, which is a strange thing for us. But we, we follow Him. And we should also be grateful when we're free from persecution. Of course. We don't, we don't want persecution. We expect it, but we don't want it. So we should be grateful when we're not getting it. We're not getting it right now. We have an opportunity that's given to us by this freedom. God's given us this opportunity. And we, we should be grateful. We should love the country that we're in because of what God's done for it, because of the things that it stands for. But we have to keep our perspective. We honor, we honor George Washington. We honor the founders. We honor the wise men who, 
who made this country what it is. But we worship Jesus. And we have to get the order right. And finally, we, we need to pray for those who are persecuted. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that, that we're all one body. If one part suffers, the whole part suffers. And if one part rejoices, the whole body rejoices. And that's hard for us when part of our body is in another continent. Like I was saying, it's, it's hard for us to feel that. But pray for them. Because God can give you that sense of, of one body. And for those of us who've had the opportunity to travel and worship overseas, and we were talking to Kevin just the other day, we got to go to church on his trip, and, and, uh, and by text, he and Rhonda were talking about how beautiful it was to be in this church and, and sing in another country. Now, they're still singing in English, but, but it was different accents and a different place, a different culture, a little bit different. Um, some of us have been to places that speak other languages and, and sang hymns. Uh, I've been to Romania and sang hymns. In, I'm singing in English and the people next to me are singing in Romanian. And it is amazing. It gives you such a sense of oneness. I can't technically understand what they're saying. But I'm singing the same words in my language so I don't actually know what they're saying. It, it's a beautiful thing. If one part suffers, we all suffer. We should feel that. And we should suffer for them. And we should pray for them. Hebrews 13 tells us directly, pray for them that are persecuted. And we specifically pray for their safety and for relief from suffering. We should pray that God will sustain their faith while they suffer. Because He will. But that's so important. Because sometimes He waits. So we pray that He strengthens them. We pray that they will know God's presence. Because... Because if there's one thing that, that so many prisoners and people have witnessed to that, that have been persecuted, it's understanding and knowing that God is in charge, that God is present with them while they suffer. That's such a blessing to them. We should pray for that. Pray, pray that they'll have the right words when they interact with persecutors, that they'll have the right words to say, to witness for Christ in, in the best way. Pray, frankly, that they will, their witness will inspire the, the people who are seeking to do them harm. Because they can happen. It can happen. Hard hearts can be softened by the gospel. God does that. He has that power. And we, we need to seek practical ways to support them. Uh, because they are a part of us. Now we... We preach every Sunday and every Sunday we have a time of response. I want to I now initiate a time of response if you guys want to come up. Um, as we, as we kind of conclude, I, I just have a couple more thoughts. Um, I told you about Brother, Brother Andrew Brunson in Turkey. There's an interesting story. It's very hot in the news. His church is in Izmir. And what's cool is, this is just the modern Turkish name for Smyrna. And we've been studying Revelation in Sunday school. Do you remember... What Jesus told John to put in the letter to Smyrna? I'll read it. First of all, of the letters, Smyrna was the one that Jesus had nothing critical to say to them. But here's what he said. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
So God calls us to respond to this truth. Can you imagine what those words mean to Pastor Brunson? They should mean a lot to us. So if you're a believer here, He is calling you. He's calling you to pray for your brothers and sisters in persecution. Remember them. And try not to be so caught up as I often am in all of our daily problems and the things that go on. Because we have brothers and sisters with real problems. If you're not a believer, you might be wondering what kind of message could be so valuable that the price to send it is worth a human life. Here's the message. All people have done wrong. All people have violated the the law of their Creator. And the only right pain, the only right uh, punishment for that is actually death and destruction. But God, our Creator, loves us so much that He sent His Son to pay the price for that. And not only that, not only do we get out of this punishment, but He flips it and says, I will adopt you to be my own. So we get to go from being criminals, punishable by death, to being royal sons and daughters of the King of the Universe. And it sounds so grandiose to say it, but it's the truth. And that's what the Gospel is. That's the Gospel that the world hates, that the world wants to to crush and wants to scatter. He does not demand that we earn our way because He knows that we can't. This is a gift that He's offering to us, that He's giving And so this is what people have died to spread. This is what Satan is willing to kill to stop.